0: Inside of the announcement sheet, you'll find an outline that you can use as we go through our study this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we are coming to the end of the Old Testament. As you know, in this Holy Word series, we are starting in January of this year with a study of every book of the Bible, and by the time we get to December, we're going to be looking at the, uh, the book of Revelation, and we'll have covered in 70 messages the entire Uh, uh, canon of of the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we are coming to the end of that section of the Bible where you have a lot of names that are really hard to pronounce, and we're coming to the end of the Old Testament. We still have just a couple of weeks. We're going to finish up some of the post-exilic prophets before we jump into the the New Testament and the birth of Jesus and the Gospels, the life of Christ, and uh, tonight we're going to be looking at... The, uh, the 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 I, I wish I could say a, a well-known book, but it's it's really not. It's the book of Obadiah, and it's a very easy book to read. It, uh, you can read it in about ten minutes, and uh, you can read it three times in about fifteen minutes. It's a uh, it's a it's a really quick read, and but it's one that I've never. Uh, I, I don't think that I've ever preached a sermon on it for this church. I may have preached a sermon for it in a, in a previous place, but we're going to be looking at Obadiah tonight. But right now we're going to look at Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And that's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we, we stand uh, before You as Your people and before Your Word, Father, with anxious ears to hear what it has to say to us. Our prayer, Father, is that in all that we do, we will be guided by Your presence and by Your voice speaking to us through Your Word, Father. And so we're praying with all of our heart this morning that You give us ears to hear it and eyes to see. We want to glorify You with all that we do and all that we are. We do not want to be Your people just on the the surface to have a facade of spirituality, Father, but we want your presence and your gospel and your blessings and all of all the, the, the blessings that, that come from drawing near to you, Father, to go into the deepest part of our being and to transform us. We, we pray, Father, to be that kind of light in this community. And so as we study this text, Father, we're asking for, for you to open it up to us. And we ask you to bless us in all that we do. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. During his his years as premier of the Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev denounced many of the policies and the atrocities of Joseph Stalin. And they were many. If you've read uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's uh, The Gulag Archipelago, you know that those denouncements and and that censuring came uh, from Khrushchev for a reason and with reason. And there was a, a moment, though, where Stalin is... Address, or excuse me, Khrushchev is, is denouncing Stalin before a large crowd publicly. Gigantic meeting. And he's denouncing a lot of the atrocities that Stalin had, had brought upon the heads of his own people. And at a moment in the break, in his speaking, there's this heckler with a loud voice that everybody could hear, that shouts out, you were one of Stalin's colleagues. How come you never tried to stop him? And the place went even more quiet. And Khrushchev roared out, who said that? And nobody moved a muscle. Everybody gets fearful. There's this agonizing silence. Then Khrushchev replied quietly, Now you know why. Now you know why. You know, one of the things that uh, is a, a hard lesson to learn, but it is a truth that we need to understand and embrace, is that change rarely happens without courage. Change rarely happens without courage. I mean, just think about it at the most personal level. Your own life. You know, we talk about the need for forgiveness and the forgiveness is there and we experience the forgiveness for the things that we do in this life that, that are painful to other people and and there are times when we even need to forgive ourselves because of the things that we do to our, to our own life that are devastating and destructive and, and painful. But if you've ever tried... To get beyond just the feeling and the experience of forgiveness and to get to that place where you're actually building or structuring so and, 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 and manning and strengthening some, some changes in your life, you know that that's an incredibly painful thing and that the, the, the real change and the significant and profound change that takes place in your life is never going to stick and it's never going to get very far unless you're courageous. Which means that a lot of times you've got to be honest about your own life, which is never an easy thing to do. Change rarely happens without courage. And that's not just true with our personal life. Our individual personal life is true with all of life. And courageous faithfulness, those two words linked together like that, courageous faithfulness are words that I think describe the man Nehemiah, whose name means God comforts. Nehemiah is a contemporary of Ezra that we studied last week, although he arrives in Jerusalem many years after Ezra. And where the book of Ezra and Ezra himself is very much concerned with the rebuilding of the temple, Nehemiah is concerned with the rebuilding of the walls around Jerusalem. Ezra is rebuilding the temple and Nehemiah concerned with rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem now. Just a tiny bit of history. And we're not going to spend nearly as much time talking about the history of this book because uh, it'll be repeating a lot of what I've said in in the last couple of weeks. But Ezra returns to Jerusalem, if you want to write this down, 458 B.C. Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Six chapters, 7 chapters into the book of Ezra. Ezra finally shows up on the scene. That's about 458 B.C. Thirteen years later, 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns. During this period of time, Xerxes has died. His son at the age of 18, Artaxerxes I, has taken over the reins of the Persian kingdom. And he is reigning this gigantic empire. Now, prior to the return of Nehemiah, there is a governor of Syria who has one of the greatest, at least one of my favorite names in all of antiquity. This governor of Assyria, uh, excuse me, of Syria's name is Megabizus. Megabizus. Business. It's just a big business, mega business. And he is uh, allied with, with the Persian Empire. And as part of that alliance works its way out into Syria, he is very helpful in helping Persia subdue Egypt. And during this battle uh, with, with Egypt, which involved the Greeks as well, he takes uh, several of the commanders prisoner after they have won the battle. And these commanders are, are under his rule and under his obligation to, to protect. He takes them to Susa, the capital of Persia, and he gives them, these, these Greeks and these Egyptians, his word that they're going to be protected. And he is a man of his word. And a man whose word means a lot to himself. And so the promise to take care of these prisoners goes on for a couple of years and everything is fine until that mean widow of Xerxes, this is Art of Xerxes, who is the emperor now, it is his mother. The widow of his dad Xerxes, she gets it in her mind that she needs to kill these prisoners that Megabusus has taken all the way to Susa. And this infuriates Megabusus. And he is so infuriated that he declares Syria, which is just to the north of Israel, he declares Syria to be this independent state, independent nation. He has nothing to do with Persia. Well, Persia kind of likes Syria. And they like that land. And they like that control. And they like mega business. And they're not going to let that stand. So they send the army down into Syria a couple of times. And mega business repels them and survives these invasions by Persia into Syria. Well, after a time, he decides that I've made my point. They know that I'm my own man, that I'm upset about the way that my word was not carried out, that that Xerxes' uh, widow, his wife, has killed these guys. I've made the point. So he goes back to to Syria in 447 B.C. and is pardoned and comes under the good gracious uh, uh, powers and auspices of, of Artaxerxes. That is 447 B.C. Now that territory has, been, has known war. It's just, it's, it's the land that's standing between Israel and Persia. And finally now, in 447 B.C., there is the beginning of peace in that particular part of the world. That is just two years before Nehemiah goes to Israel. And what this does is open the door for Nehemiah to go back to the land during a time of relative peace in the area of Israel. Now, Three lessons. Usually we save the lessons for the end. Let me give you the lessons up front and you can be thinking about them as we go through the message. There are a lot in the book of Nehemiah. We could spend an entire uh, 13, a quarter, uh, a, a quarter of the year, 13 weeks in a study of Nehemiah. A ton of lessons. Let me give you three right off the top. Number one, Nehemiah wisely combines prayerful words with faithful actions. Nehemiah wisely combines prayerful words with faithful actions. One of the things that we say a lot is that actions speak louder than finish it. Words. Actions speak louder than words. Here's the thing about Nehemiah. Nehemiah doesn't think of acting without doing, you know, he will not do any action. He will not do anything without first speaking a word of prayer to God. Nehemiah is a guy that is combining his actions with prayer. In fact, when you look at the prayers that he prays in this book that goes by his name, Nehemiah, he prays very long prayers. Chapter 9, for instance, a very long prayer. In fact, that is a great model prayer for the leaders of God's people. But he also prays short prayers. And they're always coupled with, with action and with faithfulness to the things that God has called him to do. Here's an example from Nehemiah chapter 4, and verse 9. But we pray to our God... And, what did we do? Posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Praying and action, action and praying. Faithful actions and, and, and faithful prayers going hand in hand. A next lesson, or a second lesson, is this. Nehemiah operates with a high view of God. And that begins in the fourth verse of the first chapter. Nehemiah operates with a high view of God. Church, the way you think individually about God influences the way you live your life. If you think that God is, is not all that interested in your life, then you're not going to include God in your decision-making processes. If you think that God is aloof and that He's distant and that He doesn't really hear your, your prayers, He doesn't really hear the, the inclinations of your heart toward Him, then you're probably not going to pray very much or try to engage Him very much in your life because He's far away. But if God is sovereign and you see Him as all-powerful and you see Him as not just gracious but intimate, that He's close to you, that you understand that He calls you to, to be His son or His daughter and He is your Abba Father, Abba being a very, uh, a very intimate term of endearment of, of, of God as, as, as a father then that's going to change the way that you live your life, the way that you interact with God, the decisions that you make in this life. The way you think about God influences the way you live your life. Nehemiah is operating with a tremendously high view of God. Nehemiah, over and over and over again in these prayers, refers to God or addresses God as the God of heaven. Who is he praying to? The God of heaven. When he's in trouble and he goes to God in prayer, How does he address God? The God of heaven. And in so doing, he is recognizing, it's a recognition of God's sovereignty over the earth. In other words, when he prays to the God of heaven, he's praying to a God that in his own mind there's this vision of God as with God there is nothing that is impossible. I'm praying to the God of heaven. And then the last lesson before we get into the story itself, Nehemiah, not so much of the man but the book, is another example of the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of the woman, to use uh, Thomas Schreiner's phraseology. It's the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of the woman. It's a reminder of Genesis chapter 3. It's a reminder of the fall and the implications and ramifications of sin entering into the world. There is, as you read Nehemiah... the the recognition that there is a story going on or a struggle going on behind the scenes. That there's more here, and that's what all of these prayers allude to and all of these prayers remind us of, that there's more going on here in in the book of Nehemiah than just some savvy politics and some, some palace intrigue. The book is about whether or not the will of God, the will of the God of heaven, is going to triumph. Will there be spiritual revival? Will the people, as they go back into the land and the the temple is is, is built and and the wall is built around the city, will there be spiritual revival? Will there be faith? Or will there be fear? Will the people, once and for all, make a decision and live by it that they're going to be obedient to Torah? That they're going to obey the will of God for their life? Are they going to worship God? Is there going to be justice in the land? Will there be more rebuilt than just a wall? Which brings us to the story. In in, in, uh, Nehemiah chapter 1, we begin with the prayers. The book opens with a fellow by the name of Hanani, the little brother of Nehemiah, coming back with some unnamed men from a trip to Jerusalem. They arrive in Susa where Nehemiah lives. And Nehemiah is glad to see his brother. His little brother. His brother's been in Jerusalem with some fellas And he's really concerned about Jerusalem and how those that have been in exile are faring in this city. And he goes, Hanani, how are things going in Jerusalem? How are things going back home? And Hanani says, well, I hate to tell you this, big brother, but not so well. Not so well. And he continues in verse 3, those who, who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah, when he hears these words, he he begins to weep and, and he begins to mourn. And it's not just, you, you know, he cries for a couple of minutes and and, he, and he's upset about a couple of minutes. It begins to kind of mark his life. He weeps and he mourns for days. Now, you know, whenever we read about a man crying, you know, there are certain thoughts that come into our mind that maybe he's not all that strong of an individual, not emotionally put together very well. Well, Nehemiah is not a weak individual, as we'll see in this story. Nehemiah is not just this, this regular Joe, he is a bona fide hombre, and his heart is tender, For the glory of God and the things that that God is tender-hearted towards, He's tender-hearted towards as well. And so Nehemiah begins to weep and he begins to mourn, and this goes on for days, and he begins to pray that God grants success to him and that God grants success to those, verse 11, of your servants who delight in revering your name. That God, you'll take note of those people that want to bring glory to you. That you'll take no God of heaven of those that want to bring glory to your name in all of the earth. Give your servant success today by granting him what? Favor in the presence of this man. What man? Well, the king. Artaxerxes. Now, before we move on, just a little detail in the, in the notes here on time. You know, if you're if you're like me, there's a lot of times when you're reading through something, you just want to get through it, and you read the dates, or you read the places, and you just skip right over it. I mean, we are in that section of the Bible where every other word is a name that is hard to pronounce. And we just go right over the top of it. Except, I want to draw attention to the fact that when the book opens up, the book opens in the month of Chislev. Chislev, which is December. After you go through all of the stuff that I've just talked about, you get to chapter 2. It opens in the month of Nisan. Chislev, December, Nisan, March, April, that period of time in the beginning of the year. Which means that by the time you get to this particular part of the story where Nehemiah is in front of Artaxerxes having a conversation about Jerusalem, he has been praying for four months. Chapter 1 ends with the words that, that, that Nehemiah is his cupbearer to the king. Which means that probably as much as the prime minister, this cupbearer has as much influence with the king as anybody else in the kingdom. And during this four months, he's been praying over and over and over again that God grant him success. And as the cupbearer, he's going into the presence of the king every day. And he takes on this one particular day at the beginning of chapter 2, he takes the wine into the king. And the king notices that Nehemiah is looking a little down. He's looking a little glum. Sort of sad. He's not looking very chipper. And Nehemiah is probably not thinking about the king. He's probably thinking about Jerusalem. Or he would remember that it's never really a good thing to look sad before the king because the king has the weight of the world on his shoulders. king does not want to be surrounded by a bunch of, uh, of negative nellies. He wants to be surrounded by can do kind of people. He wants to be surrounded by people that are going to lift him up when he goes down. And Artaxerxes notices that his cupbearer, Nehemiah, is not chipper. And he goes, Nehemiah, come here. Is everything okay? You you look a little down. I mean, when I look at your face, all I can see is a heart that is just full of sadness. And Nehemiah becomes a little bit fearful at this point because he knows it's never a good thing to look sad before the king. But what has he been doing for 4 months waiting for this this moment? Pray. Prayer's going up to God. Prayer's going up to God for four months. He's praying to God about Jerusalem, about Jerusalem, about Jerusalem. This is what he wants. For four years, God, four months, God has been honing that desire in his heart through prayer. And and, and, and Nehemiah says, King, it's just it's, it's really hard to be happy when your hometown is in ruins. And you're not sure that the family's doing okay. And then it happens. Verse 4, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Well, he's been praying about it every day. I mean, he's being emphasized and, and, and built into his heart, engraved into his heart what he wants through this prayer. He's prayed it for four months every day continually. And the king says, what is it that you want? And after four months of praying to God about the heartbreaking state of Jerusalem, do you think that Nehemiah is going to have any trouble answering the words, what is it that you want? He, he shoots up What Derek Kidner, one of the commentaries on Nehemiah, calls an arrow prayer. He shoots it straight into heaven. Lord, help me. And Nehemiah says, I need some help. Nehemiah asks the king to help him go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls and the city itself and to make it inhabitable. To make it safe one more time. And you know what the king says? Sure. Now, here's the deal. Artaxerxes knows just how unruly of a history Israel has had with anybody who's tried to conquer it, going all the way back to the Assyrians. And then you think about the Babylonians, and now the Persians. And it's also at a time where they've just established peace, because had got his nose out of out of joint because of the killing of those prisoners and they've had to go in there twice already to try to root him out. It didn't really happen. But now we've got peace and now you want to go back and you want to build this gigantic wall around this city that has a history of being unruly? Sure, go on back. (laughs) I'm so convicted. When I think about this story, we give up on prayer way too early. Don't you think that we live in this age where if we don't get it immediately, I mean, if I have to, one of the reasons I don't go to McDonald's is that they made me wait one day for five minutes for some French fries. You know, you think about the old days, man, you had to go out there and you had to pick that potato, you had to wash that potato, you had to slice that potato, you had to soak in water for a little while, put some salt on it, get that. I mean, it was was at least, you know, an hour process. They made me wait five minutes. One of the most infuriating things that we go through in our day is having to wait for that technology to catch up to us, right? The emails, the phone calls, texting. And so we get frustrated in our prayer life and, you know, we pray one prayer up to God about it and then because the answer is not immediate, like a text or an email or an Instagram or a tweet. Did I say that right? Is that tweeters? I don't know. I don't do it or Facebook it, then we give up and we take matters into our own hands. I want to tell you something, church. God is in the business of changing hearts. Changing hearts is God's specialty. And that's why it is wrong for us as His people who declare to know the God of heaven and not just to know Him and to know His book, but to be His children. To give up on prayer way too early. Well, that's the first first part of the book. We get into the second part of the book now, and it's the external enemies. Enemies on the outside, chapter 2, verse 10. Here's this fellow, Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the Ammonite official. They hear about all of this, that that Nehemiah is heading back to, to rebuild the wall and all of this good stuff. And they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Well, Nehemiah goes on his own recognizance trip as he, as he gets to the city in the early days for three days or so. And he gathers all the people together and convinces the people to rebuild. And no sooner do they get the shovels out that the ones who are disturbed about anybody promoting the welfare of the city or promoting the welfare of the, the, uh, the Hebrews, they get on the attack. Look at verse 19. sam the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official. And now they, they bring in Geshem, when they heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us and they said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, if you don't have walls around your city and your people are devastated and you're in a state of poverty and there are no defenses and everything is disorganized, there is no more of a frightening thing than can be said than you're rebelling against the king and he's going to come at you. And this would be because of the state of Jerusalem. The perfect opportunity for Nehemiah to become afraid. But you'll also remember that Nehemiah operates with what? High view of sin. Of God. And so he responds, verse 20 the God of heaven. There it is. The God of heaven. The one who is not just sovereign of earth, but over the entire universe, the God of heaven, will give us success. We, His servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. We get to chapter 3. The building begins in earnest. Progress is being made. Things are happening. But so is progress in the opposition. Look at chapter 4, the first two verses of that chapter. When Sam-Balat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Do they really think that they're going to restore that wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in one day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Not knowing that out of those stones, the God of heaven could raise up sons of Abraham. Burned as they are. Question. What follows on the heels of that opposition right there at the beginning of chapter 4? Prayer. Prayer. And it's prayer that keeps them going, keeps the people of God focused, even when they, the, the, the ridicule that they are receiving from Sanballat and Tobiah and Getschum, it turns deadly. When the enemy is going to sneak attack the people and they have to build with one hand and they have their sword in the other. It's, it's even ramping up to the place where they, in chapter 6, are going to try and assassinate Nehemiah through some intrigue. But you know as well as I do that enemies, external enemies are not the only place where you find opposition to God's will. That's not the only place where trouble comes. In fact, it is a fact of life that sometimes the can of worms opens on the inside. And you have the internal enemies. External enemies may many times have the effect of rallying and unifying the people. You've got enemies on the outside. They unify. They rally the people. The people are unified and we can stand as one against the foe. But when we think of Israel's history, they were more times than not their own worst enemy. They were their own worst enemy. The worst enemies were not those outside their borders, but the seeds of their own destruction that were planted in their own hearts. And that they continued to water into this plant that led them astray. And this is a reality in Nehemiah. The greatest danger to the completion of the project will come from among themselves. They were going again, if they were not careful, be their own worst enemies. And so in chapter 5, it reveals that the Hebrews themselves, as they're rebuilding the wall, are on the brink of destruction. Not because of external forces, but because of what's happening inside of Israel itself. Through injustice, the result of ignoring Torah once again. So in chapter 5, verse 2, you've got people who are starving and they don't have any resources to get food. They are on the brink of destruction. In the very next verse, verse 3, there are other people among them that are forced to sell their homes to make a trip to the AGB just to buy some groceries. In verse 4, the very next verse, others have to sell their homes in order to pay the taxes. In verse 5, again, you see what's happening here. Some are even having to sell their children into slavery in order to pay their debts. And Nehemiah becomes very aware of this. And he becomes angry. And he calls all of the nobles together and convinces them to give it back and to do so cheerfully for the good of the nation. And even Nehemiah himself sets the example by giving sacrificially himself, which now brings us to the end of chapter 6, verse 15. The wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in how many days? How many days, church? 52 days they rebuilt this wall around the city. Now, the temptation, because that is a magnificent thing, the temptation for us, you know, 2,500 years removed, is to think that the rebuilding of the wall was the point. And it's not the point. The rebuilding of the wall served as a metaphor for a bigger project. The rebuilding of God's people. It's the rebuilding of God's kingdom in people's hearts. Which brings us to this last section, the revival. The people in chapter 8 gather at the water gate. And Ezra begins to read God's word to the people. Verse 5. Ezra opened up the book. And all the people could see Him because He was standing above them. And as He opened it, what did the people do? They stood up. He's going to be reading God's Word and they stood up. By the way, you know, one of the things that we do here Sunday morning, Sunday nights, whenever we're together and we are reading Scripture before a message or whenever, we stand, right? And one of the reasons we do that is this verse. To show the greatness of our respect for the voice of God speaking to us through His Word. And so as he read it, the people all stood up. Verse 8, and he read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. And these are beat up people. And they're tired. History has not been great to them. And they they hear God's Word not just being spoken, but explained. And what do they begin to do? Cry their eyes out. Cry their eyes out. So hungry. So hungry for a Word from God. And they hear God's Word. And they're so convicted in their heart over the way that their lives have, have, have gotten off the rails. They begin to weep. And it's such an ironic thing that this happens by the water gate because the Word of God, as they hear it, falls on their hearts like fat drops of rain on parched land. And the people weep. And a voice, Ezra, Nehemiah's voice, says to them, Don't weep. Don't weep. But rejoice because today is a holy, holy day. And when you get to chapter 9, they, they remember their, their, their history. It's a remembrance of, of the history, the faith history of, of the people. And the revival at this time ends with the people signing a covenant again to walk according to God's will, to observe all of His commandments, and not to introduce the false religions and the paganism into their midst through the intermarriage with non-Hebrews. And Judaism begins to be restored and rebuilt but it won't last. There is an element of secularization that begins to set in and it doesn't last. But about 500 years later, there's another one who is intimately close to the king who leaves his home and goes to another place of wreckage and ruin. Our world. And one day he's not at a a water gate, but he's by a well near Sychar where he encounters a woman who has been all of her life her own worst enemy. Messed up on men, messed up on love, messed up on God, messed up on the doctrine of worship, messed up on Jews and, and, and Samaritans. And she's gone there in the middle of the day with a water bucket. Not in the cool of the morning or in the the cool of the evening because she's ostracized because of all of the ways that she has lived out the ramifications of being her own worst enemy. Of watering all of those seeds of destruction that are planted in her heart. And this one who left the side of the king to go to a place of ruin tells this woman that everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never, never, never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in John chapter 4, we read, Of this this Samaritan woman leaving her water bucket there beside that well and going back into the city and saying, I think I have found the Messiah. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And maybe, just maybe, perhaps, you know, there are things that are going on in your life that you've not been very prayerful about and, you know, you've not been very patient. You know, one of the ironies of the faith is that, you know, how many of you have ever prayed, you know, give me patience, Lord, and give it to me now? You know, the irony, the, 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 the terrific irony of the faith is that you never get patience without being patient with something. You don't persevere, or you don't get the perseverance until you persevere through something. You don't have long suffering as a virtue unless you've suffered a long time through something. Well, maybe what you've noticed in your own life is that, you know, there's just just not been a whole lot of depth. And maybe there's not been a whole lot of of significance either because of the lack of depth in your, your relationship with God and your commitment to this church and commitment to the call that God has for the kind of light of glory that you're to be in this city. We're going to sing a song of of invitation right now. It's going to praise God, but it's a moment of invitation. It's a song of invitation to invite anyone here who who is living life far too many years with parched ground and wants more than anything else that drink that will never make them thirsty again. To know that even though it feels like you're in exile right now and you feel uncomfortable even in your own skin sometimes and feel uncomfortable at home sometimes, that there is one who's wanting to bring you in from exile and to rebuild your life. And that can take place today as a beginning place for the rebuilding of your life into the image of the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And if that describes you this morning, very humbly and modestly, we want you to come down and to talk to our shepherds about what's going on in your life. And let them talk to you about that and pray with you about that. But for the rest of us who are so thankful to not be in exile, but to be a part of God's kingdom and to be a part of His work and to know that God is doing a a rebuilding project in our life right now. It's an opportunity for us to sing praise. And that's what I'm going to invite you to do right now. If, if there are needs spiritually that you have, come down and talk to the shepherds. For the rest of us, let's stand before God and praise Him with all our hearts. Father God, just for-